and welcome back to Cold Swine, defining personhood with ancillary justice. I'm Johnny. And I'm GSV of Amusement Park. And this time we are covering chapters 12 through 15. Alright, so, last time, continuing our two timelines plot structure, in the present we saw Esk reveal her true nature to Dr. Stradan, have an expen- ext- have an extended debate about personhood and choice, reveal that she wants to kill Anander Miadnai, make friends with a small child, and get a gun that is almost as cool as it is illegal. And in the past, we see Lieutenant On ordered to commit a massacre against the Tanmond in ridiculously suspicious circumstances uh, that everyone knows don't really add up. Uh, and as she deals with the extreme emotional fallout of this, her lover Skyat offers her some comforting but incomplete realpolitik explanations for why the massacre got ordered in the first place. And Esk muses about how, even though On couldn't have possibly known it at the time, an act of seemingly hopeless defiance from her might have actually pre- prevented the massacre, prevented the death of the Tanmint. Yeah. The uh, it, it does seem like some very uncharacteristic bloodshed, uh, which at this point in Chapter 12 is still, well, pretty opaque, except that ev- that uh, we do learn very quickly that On's uh, contemporaries were under very strict orders not to inquire about it, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so in Chapter 13, as we start off here, uh, Esk sort of reflects on her combined personhood. We get some more answers as to what does she think about her sense of self. Uh, And it's pretty clear here. She considers uh, herself to be the justice of Torin and every ancillary and every segment in every ancillary unit to be like an extension of herself. She uses the metaphor of it being, uh, even if the ancillaries may sometimes be doing things separate uh, from the from the JOT that's more analogous to you your hand doing something you're not consciously thinking of making it do than it is your hand being a separate person. Yeah, uh, and if you become aware of it, then there's no question which will is going to control its actions from then, mm-hmm. at least while it's aware of it. Which does make um, the singing sound seem a lot more like you know, a habitual unconscious thing. Yeah, or or a residue of the human used to make one esque. I'm not sure. You know, I think actually no, you, you know might what? be that's, kind that's, of right. That's very wrong because one esque mentions having learned the singing later. Uh, does she learn it at uh, Valsky the first time? I think so. Because I'm thinking of, of that, and I'm thinking, does that add up? Because. Esk does say to Strigan, she strongly denies the idea that anything of her previous uh, uh, self, you know, the the, the life that uh, she had uh, before she was made into an ancillary, that is all gone. And the idea of trying to recover it is both impossible and reprehensible to her, because it would definitely mean the destruction of her current sense of self. It was unclear to me at that time whether she was being sort of accurate on the facts there, or if she was just trying to emphatically deny the idea of having this done to her, having her personality destroyed, either seemed sensible. If one esque is a unit from Skyat, 
Uh, no, sorry, not from Sky. From, from Val, Val Sky. Sky. Uh, if one esque was a unit from Val Sky, you could maybe see something of that uh, being what's going on, right? Because we see that the people on Val Sky in a later chapter have a very important cultural and religious significance to their music, and they literally like died singing. Um, so if there is any remnant stuff, you would think that could be something that remains of them. Or it could yes. be a, a more, you know, uh, she was being 100% literal to the doctor and saying that, that the person who I was uh, is completely dead and nothing remains of them. And in that case, it's a cultural remnant, which is uh, perhaps even more relevant because there seems to be a lot of uh, discussion, especially in these chapters, about the idea of the the Rajai as... Uh, people who steal and co-opt cultural artifacts. Uh, so her relation to that, her relationship to that, uh, might be relevant in that way. It's also possible that she's only partially wrong in the sense that yes, it may be possible to get, it may be impossible to recover anything that's been lost, but that isn't the same as everything having been lost. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean there, right? Like it might be the case that uh, a lot, a bunch of the parts of the either literal brain or just uh, personality uh, are uh, fundamentally changed or destroyed by the process of becoming an ancillary and that uh, there's no way to recover what is lost. But it could also be the case that some aspects stick around. I mean, we, we, when we see the process of um, awakening an ancillary happen, uh, we get the idea that people have to be screened um, because some people are just incompatible with the process, which seems like it would imply that there is a psychological component. Or the, at least that the, the process that's used to ancillarize people is not entirely predictable in its effects. Mm -hmm. Like the high level predictability is obvious because they haven't mentioned the process literally killing the body, but lower level stuff is evidently not as predictable because we get a comment later while well, the the uh from the lieutenant's oh well the, the other esque didn't sing. Well we also get a comment that literally explicitly says no other ancillary units sing. It is a unique yeah, this thing. This is to a, a one esque specific thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I did find I, as far as the discussion of Valsky, I'm glad you brought and it's important here, but I'm glad you brought it up specifically, uh, especially as far as their uh, unusual religion for two reasons. One, because the establishment of it as unusual underscores the ubiquity of the interpretatio greca that's at work in Rajai religion, the, mm -hmm. the process by which uh, any religion they need to absorb is discovered to merely be some sort of outgrowth or corruption of the original. Right. Either the, the creator god of the religion was, uh, in fact, Ama'at in disguise or under another name, uh, or all of the gods are just part of the great genealogy of gods uh, that exist in a blindingly convoluted net of gods. Which, yeah, when you're... The, the parallel to Rome, because Greek stuff is obvious... Mm -hmm. um, but also, the reason I'm glad it's brought up is because it establishes possible significance to uh, one esque or additional significance to one esque being Valskyan. Uh, it ha it being established that the Valskyans achieved what 
so far, what we have reason to think so far is the unprecedented step of keeping their original religion legal eventually. Wait, I'm sorry. Is one-esque like the body of her Valskyan? I forgot where it said that because Dragan tries to identify the body, right? And says it's from a specific place. Did she say it was Valsky? Uh, let me see if I can find that. Oh, she, uh, Strigan thinks the body is Gownish. Gownish. Okay. Well, that's the answer to our question is the body is Gownish, but I don't think that really tells us one way or another. Gownish, you know, that could be like a, an ethnic group that lived on Valsky. Uh, possible, but it's explicitly distinguished from Valsky when Justice of Torin is listing the artifacts of annexed planets that it has on board. Okay, excellent. So we know that one asks body is not significant, and we can thus take it as as read that Esk is just being accurate, that the process of becoming an ancillary more or less destroyed whatever mind was originally in her body. Yes, which makes it even more interesting that Valsky apparently left such an impression on her. Yeah. Okay, so back to chapter 12. Um, after reflecting on, uh, after Ask reflects on her personhood, uh, we see that, uh, Lieutenant On is liked by her superiors and resented by her peers, uh, and that everyone is united in thinking that she is weird for being so nice to the ancillaries. Um, and we also see that Anander Miadnai has bore- boarded the Justice of Torin under mysterious circumstances, uh, which is an event which pings off some suppressed memories for the JOT. Yeah, it's interesting to see uh, also in this chapter and then the next uh, JOT point of view present, or I guess, yeah, let's call it the present uh, arc. Um, the yeah. ex- the increasingly intense uh, specification of self, like it's helpful for disambiguation, but it's done so much. And at least in the text, the way it's styled, with as many hyphens as happen to be required, um, though it, it it seems like there's a psychological element as well. It's not just uh, for the reader's benefit. Well, yeah, I think esque. Uh, we we see a lot here that, given that the past segments are uh, implied to be like esque telling a story to any of the various people that she tells her life story to throughout this, um, her usage of I is the usage of I based on what she would have thought like at the time and how she looks back on those events. So until it's explicitly noted, I think in chapter uh, 14, uh, yeah, in chapter 14, she notes that a thing that happens in that chapter, specifically when one esque realizes that the JOT altered one esque's memories, um, uh, then is the first moment where she feels like there is a separation between Justice of Torin and One-esque. And so in all the previous chapter segments, I was used interchangeably very deliberately because that was accurate to the psychological reality she was under at the time. Like, she even says at the start of this chapter that um, One-esque being not on the Justice of Torin because she was down uh, on the planet was like a mildly dissonant experience. Um, you know, it was like still having your finger attached to your body but not being able to see it or something like that. And being on the ship with all of her ancillaries in one place uh, was a more natural feeling. 
Yeah. So I, I guess at, the, at this point, yes, it's a, a diegetic indication that that fracturing has happened, which we get some pretty <clears throat> significant justification for in the Chapter 14 conversation with Anna Ander. Yeah. Um, other big things here. So uh, Lieutenant Owen's superiors are 100 Captain Rubrin and uh, Decade Commander Tia Und. Uh, and they both like her because she's good at her job. Um, but they've been told not to ask questions and they're not going to ask questions about why she's been uh, effectively, you know, demoted back onto the ship. Um, and all of her peers uh, are basically saying, you know, she never deserved this job anyway. She didn't uh, come from the, the proper breeding. Uh, no one should have expected her to last this long anyway, but everyone expected she was going to fail at some point, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's a there's a right-behind-me moment. Yes. And, and that right-behind-me moment is interesting because, you know, one ask could have easily prevented it, right? They asked her at one point, when is the... When is uh, on going to come? When is she going to arrive? And she says, like, about five minutes. So she very easily could have said, oh, now she's going to be here in 15 seconds. But she didn't. And we this is fitting into a broader uh, pattern that we've seen throughout the rest of the book, where, uh, at least up till now, whenever the Justice of Torin uh, or Wanask, as the case may be, are being uh, kind of rebelling against power, they tend to do it by way of not being proactive rather than not following orders. Yeah, like malicious, strictly limited compliance. Yeah. And that makes, that angle makes the conversation with Anna Ander even more interesting, but I'm not, I don't have words mm -hmm. yet for how. I might get them or I might have to bring it up in the next episode when we hopefully learn more about what's going on. Well, we can talk about that when we get there. Um. The other interesting thing this chapter is that we see a lot more um, that On cares about Onesk. You know, she's she's distressed at the idea that Onesk is going to be hurt by a careless tech medic. Um, she tells Esk that she doesn't want uh, that it troubles her to think that Esk would be troubled by her singing. Um, sorry, that it troubles On to think that Esk would think that On is troubled by Esk's singing. Yeah, that... Um, sorry, I, I worked out before we recorded, and that level of meta gives me a headache right now. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's also interesting, right? Because even though On clearly wants to help and protect uh, Esk, the way she's doing it is that she protests based on, like, the idea that oh, Esk is sort of the military's property and my responsibility, and so by damaging or harming her, you are uh, sort of making a problem that it is my official responsibility to resolve, rather than saying what seems to be her true objection, which is like, I care about this person and you are hurting them and I don't want you to do that. Um, so it's like, you know, it's different sort of level on the one hand it could be different levels of willingness to buck the societal trends but i think thematically it's more like this is the effect of being in a society that is so like omnipresently 
watchful for misbehavior at so many levels, right? Like, the ancillaries are going to report things to their higher-ups if they get asked, uh, and all the officers, all the soldiers are very aware of the fact that, like, all of their actions are under scrutiny. So, of course, On can't just say, I treat this thing that I'm supposed to think of as property as if it's a person, because she's going to get in trouble for that. Uh, Or she could, but she's not willing to. Um, uh, or she doesn't think it would be productive to. And I think that's going to ultimately fit into the larger theme of, like, uh, how people can or can't or do or don't resist oppressive power structures, which seems like it's a lot of what the book is talking about. Yeah. The the personhood angle's interesting and just kind of obliquely reminded me of uh, another series that I've been reading recently where uh, an AI Mm -hmm. decides to... I, I will not name it so as to avoid spoilers, but the line is too good not to share in this context. Um, the okay. uh, This AI has decided to work with a particular human and is very adamant to human authorities about not working with anyone else. And the human authorities are pretty upset by this because they don't want that particular human in charge of anything. And the uh, well, so they, they ask, well, why the hell would you want him in particular? And said, so, well, he's the only person who's treated me like a person. You guys keep referring to me as the device, and he called me an asshole. And a device can't be an asshole. Only a person can. <laughs> I don't know. I've met some real asshole-ish devices. I don't know if I buy that. Uh, it would make... If you had already been introduced to this character, like in the parts before this exchange happens, trust me, you would understand. I, I will recommend the series at some later date when this conversation has passed out of memory so as to avoid any spoilers whatsoever, but it's excellent. Fair enough. Uh, last thing I want to say about this chapter, Esk is uh, sort of partially remembering, but knowing there are some things she can't remember about the incident uh, where she, uh, Anna, some Ann Anders came on board her at Valsky, uh, an incident which she lied about to another Ann Ander for reasons she didn't then know. Uh, and it seems to correspond interestingly uh, with something that she said about re-education when talking to Strugan, that uh, re-education is a limited process and memories can't be removed, but they can be repressed. Yeah. Well, so I have a feeling that will be important, but I don't think it's relevant to the the imprint that Valsky left on Oneesk because we've established that that's not the origin of Oneesk. Well, in the in the later chapter where Anna Ender is talking to uh, to uh, well, not to ask, but to uh, what what was it? It was a different unit of the Justice uh, of Torin. One bow or one var. One var is the one that yes, yeah. Uh, but she's talking to 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 them, and she says like. Uh, you know, of course, that all of your ancillaries possess the capability of... possess the potential to be individuals. Uh, and she says, uh, yes. Uh, and she thinks to herself that she remembers hearing that. Those, yeah, those exact words. And that if she thinks the next line is gonna be, uh, what if you got confused or couldn't reach a resolution about a certain topic? Um... Uh, some something to that effect, um, and then instead she says, "What if an enemy captured a piece of you, uh, and then you got it back, but it was changed?" Uh, again, paraphrasing. Um, 
But that implies that in the past conversation, the conversation that led to a memory erasure the first time, what she said was, you know each of your ancillaries have the capability to be a separate individual, what if you couldn't decide on something? Uh, you know, what if you couldn't come to a decision? Which implies that the way that memory erasure is being done might be, you know, we actually can't erase your memories, but we can separate your memories into like two different people with two different sets of memories and then maybe you discard one of the uh uh ancillaries the ancillary that kept all the memories uh which would maybe suggest that every time anander wants to do the memory or removing trick she's gotta pick an ancillary to get killed which could be interesting because down on the planet one of the ancillaries got killed. Someone broke their neck for no no explicable, no explained reason. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could have happened, and it could or just be a another Anna Ander could have done um, it during the incident at the temple. Exactly, and she could have been trying to to remove memories of something related to the event or provide the opportunity um, for this conversation to happen, complete with editing. Well, especially because we know at, at, that the Justice of Torn very recently lost memories, right? Uh, the Justice of Torin. Sorry, the one esque unit should remember that the indiv- the individual segment who was separated and in a in the temple and was ordered to kill the people and thought she might have to kill Lute- uh, Lieutenant On. She was doubtful and afraid, and that that memory of doubt and fear was removed. Now, I guess it doesn't really add up though, because the the that one. Uh, segment who got their neck broken got her neck broken during the time of the incident before they had connected to the Justice of Torin. So I guess it doesn't really make any sense. Ah, well. Uh, well. It would have it would have sort of added up nicely because it could have been an explanation for why the protagonist in her current state exists as a separate thing that wasn't destroyed with the Justice of Torin, and it could be oh, well, this is the version of you that had the right sets of memories or had to be separated so that it could have those memories and then it managed to get away because uh, uh, it had, like, the information to know that it was going to... uh, that that it was being betrayed. Oh, well, we'll see. Just a bunch of speculation. Um, On to chapter 13. Uh, that seems just as well. Everything else I want to say at 12 is better contextualized in 14, so I'll uh, hopefully remember to just get to it. Okay. So, yeah, we're back on Nilt. Yeah, uh, we're on Nilt. We see Cyberden chilling out for a while uh, while she gets introduced to uh, what on Nilt is a big city, which seems like it's not a huge city, but there are some tourist attractions. Um, S goes to visit a singer on the suggestion of that nice kid she met at Stradan's house. Uh, the singer is, uh, the kid's cousin, and the kid is there because, uh... The relative was injured in the first part of the story. Yeah, they needed to go to a, a doctor with more means in order to get him healed. Um, uh, and the cyber doesn't like the singer... Uh, which leads to Cyberden getting an opportunity to duck away from Esk, uh, which she uses to sell Esk's flyer, um, and Esk assumes go buy some Kef, right? Because he's we, we very do get it confirmed in fifteen that that was uh, the plan. At, yes, it, not a carried out plan, but the plan. Um, 
Esk tries to leave Cyberdin behind based on this, but Cyberdin keeps following her, uh, sort of running after her. Um, and uh, as this is happening, Cyberdin makes clear uh, her opinion of what is going on, which is uh, the Rajai sent out an agent to come and uh, rescue her uh, because Cyberdin is from a formerly important family. and. Uh, that agent doesn't like Cyberdin and wants Cyberdin to, uh, you know, fail or die or whatever. Uh, but uh, Cyberdin believes that the agent can't actually leave her alone without failing the mission. So she thinks that's kind of the conflict going on. Um, Esk explains... Uh, well, she doesn't really explain it this time. She just scares Cyberdin a little bit and Cyberdin... Uh, takes a few steps uh, too many off the edge of a bridge uh, and falls down onto, like, a little hanging bit of the bridge that's gonna fall, inevitably gonna crumble. Uh, Esk, in a split-second decision, jumps off of the bridge to rescue Cyverdan, uh, and her method of doing that is to use her inbuilt force field to push herself up against the edge of the cliff uh, that they are falling down, and in doing so, lessen the speed of their descent via friction, uh, which is a solid plan, but extremely painful and made more difficult by the fact that Cyberden doesn't have her force field uh, because she sold it, presumably for more drugs. Um, eventually, they reach the bottom after a series of events too painful for Esk to remember them, uh, and Esk wakes up later with her pack gone and Cyberden gone, covered in lots of nasty injuries from the fall, and she resolves that this is not going to be the end of her quest. She's never going to give up, no matter how much it it's, uh, destroys her, her body. Uh, and uh, that the next step, clearly, is that she's going to have to go hunt down Cyberdan. Indeed. Uh, I can confirm from experience that trying to use your body as uh, ablative fuel to slow yourself down is extremely painful. Oh yeah, you did fall down that other cliff that one time, didn't you? Yes, and then had to climb back up it with uh, one hand bandaged and using the non-wounded parts of that hand to hold my tied-together shoes. Quite fun, in a very sarcastic way. Definitely a satisfying memory, though. Um, getting seawater in a deep scrape is extremely not fun, but it probably was better than the infection that would have ensued otherwise. Um <laughs> I, it is nice to see uh, what, for all we know, is it's not a megastructure because, you know, a megastructure has to be planet scale, but some major alien, possibly alien engineering leftover. Well, it might be planet scale. It's not really clear how far the bridges but, go. So it's not clear how far they go, but it's clear that the planet isn't all bridges. I guess so. Um, yeah, so the, the chapter starts with Esk kind of musing about the bridges of Nilt. Uh, these bridges are apparently made out of glass uh, and were built by some unknown thing because they, are, they were there before anybody got there. Um, they are to all available means of examination really made out of glass, black glass, but they are impossibly structurally strong based on how they have been assembled. So whatever technique was used to build them is lost or unknown, and whatever their reason for being built is also lost and unknown. 
uh, uh, theories abound as to what it might be, but none of them seem especially good. Including the timeless, apparently even in a galactically expanded civilization, myth of an even more ancient and advanced prior civilization. Yes. But relevantly here, Esk notes, uh, one theory is they were built by humans a long time ago, because this is actually the homeworld of humanity. Uh, she notes that the the actual homeworld of humanity is popularly unknown. Uh, like, a lot of people don't know the answer. But if you do the reading and have access to some information, it's not actually a hard question to answer, and the answer isn't inherently interesting. It's some random planet, as far as they're concerned, in a not especially interesting part of the galaxy. However, every planet that humans go to has on it uh, a myth of being the real origin of human life, uh, and she reflects this as because of, like, a universal human, uh, or at least imperial tendency to fantasize that you are not a colonizer of a new place, but a recolonizer to somewhere that you always belonged that was denied you. Yeah, it's, I, I won't specifically say, call it, uh, some sort of alternate Zion Zionism, but it's kind of Zionist, at least in the sense that you're glad to have it back. That that is a durable myth, uh, but yeah, it's not like. What do you mean by that exactly? I, I'm not super familiar. Uh, Zionism, like the return to the return with a capital V to Israel, but the 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 thing that it doesn't hmm. meet about archetypal Zionism is that presumably the original colonists of Nilt had no idea this was here, or of the ancient civilization that they now claim to be inheritors of. Mm -hmm. uh, other theories include like pan-dimensional aliens that built it for unknown and potentially sinister purposes, or uh, presumably there are also some more normal theories, like, you know, maybe they built it for the purpose of moving things from place yeah. to place, like you often build a bridge, and it's just built with architectural techniques that we haven't figured out yet. Probably involves fucking hexagon glass somehow. Yeah. Or, um, like, Korean Celadon, which we do not have the knowledge to replicate, but there also isn't a lot of reason to try. I'm not familiar. What is that? Uh, it's a famously gorgeous shade. It's a pottery glass, pottery glaze, that's uh, a famously beautiful shade mm -hmm. of blue. Um, it was produced in Korea. Or, sorry, apparently it's jade green. It produ it reproduces very well the color of jade. Um but with, you know, pottery glaze, and therefore uh -huh. it's much cheaper, and you can make it look prettier as well. Um, but the technique is lost to us? Uh, yes, it was widely produced in Korea prior to contact with the Mongols, and the secrets of its manufacture were lost entirely. Um, that said, Damn. I don't know, we, we have at least two alien races established in this setting, uh, both the Presger, who've been around since the first mm -hmm. section, and now the rulers of Omicron Percy I-8. <laughs> don't mislead the I, audience yes, with your that is not the book. they're just called the Ruhr but uh, I couldn't make that sound and not throw it out there <laughs> the the audiobook narrator does it like Rur? oh as a trill yeah I, I thought yeah. about pronouncing it as a trill but when I saw five consecutive R's the joke was too good not to make 
So yes. Yeah, and, and in in the later chapter, in, in chapter 15, they explicitly point out that it's a difficult thing to pronounce in Raj because all the language is like a, a series of growls for the most part. Um, and so unless you're one of their translators, you're probably just going to pronounce it like a really long R, like R, but it's supposed to be R. And I think this is a case where, you know, unlike... Uh, I remember Peter Kinney in the uh, interview we had with him was like, you know, sometimes authors have an idea of how it's supposed to be pronounced that isn't at all present in the book. Um, but and if you want me to like give a character a very particular way of speaking, you, that that should probably be in the text somewhere to to guide me. And otherwise, to a certain extent, there's like a death of the author concept that applies of like you know, this is how it is in your head, but it might not be how it is in readers' heads if you didn't actually put it in the text. Uh, but anyway, what I'm getting at there is this is very explicit in the text that it's, it, it, it is not just, er, yes. it's, it, it is supposed to be a rolled R. I'm proud of you, though. You got perfectly right a phoneme that's not in English. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, and also I had the advantage of actually hearing it. Yeah, but, well, like, for example, as a fluent Spanish speaker, I find it weird that Americans tend to have trouble pronouncing the Spanish, the two R's in Spanish. And I don't think it's difficult at all, but I think I learned the the tap, the main R in Spanish when I was like four and started learning Hungarian. What is the distinction there? Uh, so they're kind of the same. Pro they're, they're done at kind of the same place. But uh, the tap is in like Spanish para where yeah, it's just the tap. and the the trill uh the way that the rulers of omicron Percy mm -hmm. i eight are pronounced is at the same location but with uh you know a breath that keeps it going like in uh rota mm -hmm. or roberto uh the rule of thumb in spanish is that r if you if you're looking at a word an r at the beginning of a word is trilled and an r sound that's written with two letters r is trilled and otherwise it's tapped hmm. fair enough um, the, the, the main uh, thing I wanted to point out about this chapter is that that detail of the bridges and even, even more specifically, the bridges and the fact that we don't know why the bridges are there and that everyone has their own stupid theories that aren't really backed up by anything did really put me in mind of the culture series. Like, that is exactly the kind of bullcrap that he would have on a one-off planet that we're not going to visit again. And also in The Algebraist, which borrows heavily from the culture setting for reasons that are kind of obvious, and we discussed at great length. Uh, I, I like the... Or, do you want to take credit for the line you put in your notes? Uh, sure. The, the section about the disputed thoughts everyone has about the bridges puts me in mind of the culture series' well-lived-in galaxy with a lengthy and poorly remembered history aesthetic. Yeah, which is that the line you were thinking of? Yes, that, that that it was it was exactly that line. I didn't want to steal it. Um, which I guess even okay. uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide kind of has, but doesn't focus on it because there's other stuff. Yeah, I mean, more. in the in both this series and the Culture series, it, the implication is that people are kind of taking there at least are people who are taking things seriously. So when history becomes lost history, it's because either some kind of tragedy or some kind of like uh, fluke of carelessness. Whereas in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, 
the implication is probably just that all that history got lost because everyone's really fucking stupid and yeah. not paying any attention to anything going on around them. And it's well, I, I will sort of meta summarize that summary uh, with a darker spin that's appropriate to how dark this setting seems a lot of the time. Uh, a line from Schlock Mercenary, uh, which I will give no context for because it's yeah. awesome and you should read it. Uh, Xenoarchaeology mm-hmm. is a deeply disturbing field of study. Is that the whole line? That's the entire line. Or or another one, uh, maybe. And I've, I've actually had the opportunity to use this particular analogy in real life so because it, it made a large impression on me. Um, imagine that you're walking through a forest and you find a spent shell casing the size of a house. That means someone somewhere had a reason to build a gun that fires mm-hmm. rounds that size and that they had a reason to fire it. Mm-hmm. Many, many... Uh... Many yes. aesthetic sensibilities have been built around such thoughts. I, I should see if I can find a good uh, big dumb object story for a short story for a side up, because we haven't covered that. Big dumb object story? Yeah, a, a big dumb object, something like a, a relic of a past civilization or Arthur C. Clarke's monolith on the moon. Something mm-hmm. that inspires, that is dis- both impressive and disturbing sheer, purely by virtue of the inexplicability of its existence. Would uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey count? Uh, yes, that, that's, that's where the monolith is. I've never actually seen that movie. It might be a good, it might be a good excuse to go watch it. If you want the, the two, uh, the like, three-sentence thing at the start of the Wikipedia article is good. Uh, a big dumb object is any mysterious object, presumptively of, usually, and I'll say presumptively, of extraterrestrial or unknown origin and immense power in a story which generates an intense sense of wonder merely by its existence. And to a certain extent, the term deliberately deflates this. But what's important is that the big, the big dumb object does not have agency, or at least does not appear to. So would that rule out the accession in accession? Uh, until the epilogue, it would not. Only In-universe, it is a big dumb object. And it is a big dumb object right up until the epilogue where it's established that the accession does in fact have agency. But the way mm-hmm. that it's fought over, it, to some extent, it doesn't quite qualify because it's used as a MacGuffin instead. But uh, it, whereas mm-hmm. in like Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, the interaction with the big dumb object is the whole point. Um, mm-hmm. and, and people are not fighting over it. But uh, the, I, yeah, I seem the, to remember in Rendezvous with Rama... It costs an absurd amount of money to even get one team of people up there. You do not want to send a second competing team at the same time. Yes. You also don't want to sec- send a second competing team in case this object of extrasolar origin is made of antimatter because that's what was available. And then. No, honestly, that would be a hilarious premise for a story. You. I mean, that's that's basically what happens in terraforming Mars, isn't it? That like a bunch of competing forces are trying to terraform Mars at the same time. But like just the idea that you go like a trillion light years away and the first thing you find is some other motherfucker trying to claim the same land as you. In the Rama story, like one of the first conversations they have as the spacecraft with the team is approaching uh, is to send out a probe made of regular matter specifically to test whether it's made of antimatter because if it is then the largest explosion since the dawn of human civilization is about to happen is is the is the object in rendezvous with rama like heading towards something it's passing into the solar system and it's big enough that people that they, people really want to know what it is 
And it turns out to be uh, kind of an O'Neill cylinder. But I mean, even if it is made of antimatter, in principle, it's probably going to miss almost everything. So you wouldn't shouldn't be that worried about it. Oh, yes. But you're still releasing an absolute ass ton of gamma radiation and neutrinos and shit. If uh, if you send a heavy object made of regular matter to collide with something made of antimatter. And if you broke it up badly enough... Sure, definitely yes. you want to touch it with something you, you, first and then do other you stuff. You especially don't want to touch it with something big enough that it fragments the big object made of antimatter and throws buckshot made of antimatter throughout the solar system. Yes, you want to avoid having an antimatter cloud as a general rule. Yeah, uh, the term navigational hazard doesn't quite stretch to cover that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on to chapter 14 so we can talk yeah. about the stuff from chapter 12. Okay, so Esk reflects that the incidents of this chapter mark the beginning of the separation between Esk and the JOT, which ultimately came to its conclusion when the JOT was completely destroyed and every ancillary and aspect of it was also destroyed, except for this one individual segment of one Esk uh, that stands before us. Um, So... At this time, both Esk and the JOT learn of a grand conspiracy. Anander is no longer one unified being with one set of goals. There is uh, factions amongst Anander, Miatna, I. There are at least two, traditionalists and reformers. Uh, the traditionalists planned the incident on Ors for uh, reasons not exactly specified, but the theories... In the- well, at least the gun smuggling. Uh, well... She she describes it in very vague terms, where she's like, events on oars did not go as I planned uh, and did not achieve the results that I wanted. So it's like, I assume she pretty much planned everything, uh, but we do get explicit uh, confirmation that she did put the guns there, though she didn't expect anyone would find them. And she says if they had just been discovered by some random uh, fishermen, then they probably would have still accomplished the purpose they were supposed to accomplish, which does imply... Yeah, the part that derailed it is that is that uh, the Radchai, that they were brought immediately to the attention of the Radchai at large. Yes, and because they, because their location then became immediately known, uh, they it, it couldn't be suggested that they were used for anything, because clearly they yeah. were in someone's custody. Um. So the traditionalists had some clear, they planned something on ores that didn't go off as intended, and they are currently occupying the Justice of Torrens' lower decks. Uh, they are very paranoid and see potential enemies everywhere. They see things in socially conservative and economically imperialist terms, wanting to return the Ragi to an isolationist supremacist policy, where they do not acknowledge that people such as the Presca can be better than them at anything. And their main contact with other civilizations should be conquest, which the traditionalists believe is both uh, is very much a necessity uh, for the continued economic existence of the current Rajai order. Yeah, in in part because the Rajai economy is utterly dependent on stripping continuously stripping planets to on performing new annexations in order to finance the previous ones. Yeah, which again is the justifications we hear are again extremely Ragi is space Rome uh, because we learned that originally the goal for their conquest was to provide a significant buffer zone around the Raj itself, which is presumably their home territory, 
Uh, but then that goal expanded to protecting the new citizens who lived in conquered places from their own attacks. And then eventually the conquests just became self-perpetuating because you need a new conquest to, f- to fund the expense of the old conquest. And you need to keep extracting wealth from a bunch of other places to fund the social order where the, the the great and grand houses can keep getting grander, but also there's something for the new houses. And if you aren't like continuously expanding, that's not really going to work. And you can't do that in Presger space because they're clearly capable of defending themselves. Yeah. So speaking of the Presca, uh, the reformers are the ones who are making the sweeping policy changes that we we noted previously. The integration of lower houses into the military and government positions, uh, the end of annexations, and the general push for like more equality, and presumably also the stuff with the uh, with them no longer making ancillaries. The Valskyan religion. Uh, yes, definitely the stuff with the Valskyan religion, and presumably also the stuff with no longer making ancillaries. Uh, because, uh, I mean, maybe it's just a very straightforward one-two thing where it's like we only make ancillaries out of people during annexations, and since we're not doing annexations, we're also no longer doing ancillaries. Uh, but when the traditionalist and Andromiat and I is talking to the Justice of Torin, she says, don't you want to keep your ancillaries? Uh, which implies that maybe the reformers just don't want to have ancillaries be a thing anymore. Uh, or the traditionalists could just be making a slippery slope kind of argument or a very long term, like, you know, if we don't replenish your numbers, eventually you're going to run out kind of argument. That's possible. My my read, which is subject to falsification by any of the what three chapters I think we have left or and two books. Uh, my read of that conversation is that the discussion of the trad versus reform factions uh, is meaningful to an Andermi and I only because the reformists are actually the or the uh, Presger corrupted faction of Anander. She does say that. I don't buy. I, I'm not sure I buy that um, because. Of course you would think that you're that the other side is fucking corrupted by a foreign power because that's just what people think when someone has an ideological disagreement with them that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. Yeah, but so I, I think it's plausible because the treaty between the humans and the Presger is actually a treaty between Raj and Presger. So Raj is the if you want to conquer humanity, Raj is the obvious place to drive the wedge. Even if you, even if Raj weren't powerful mm-hmm. to begin with, you, by virtue of ending a war with humanity through it, you kind of promote it to galactic political. Sorry, you know what? I, I'm happy to invent a word for this. You kind of promote it to astro political supremacy mm-hmm. by doing that. I mean, yes, uh, Strogan very directly makes that argument. Also, I hope to live long enough that we can talk about astro politics. Um, I mean, I gotta say, this was a, a big surprise to me. I did not predict this at all. I did not see anything like it coming, no. Um, but this does really neatly answer some questions that we had, right? This was kind of, this is one of those effective mystery story things where, uh, you know, 
I could very easily imagine someone thinking, okay, there's a set of assumptions we're making about the state of the world. They're leading us to a conclusion that doesn't make sense. And one of the ways that things could add up is if one of those assumptions, that being that Anand or Miat and I is necessarily united is not true, you know? Um, Cause it, it really neatly explains everything that's been going on, including the truly bizarre behavior in the temple, or at least it makes the truly bizarre behavior in the temple explicable in principle. It doesn't specifically say why that particular thing yeah. happened, but it removes the apparent it makes it much less confusing because yeah, the, all... the contradictions kind of go away because it's like, OK, well, why would Anna and I be manufacturing reasons to do stuff? She's the supreme leader with no recourse against her, like outside of things that will instantly cause a total revolution. She's nothing's going to happen if she just does something and doesn't justify it. But now we have a reason that you do need to justify your behavior and it's you need to keep the people on your side so that the other faction of Anand or Miatna eyes can't be like oh she's a fake that's why she's doing this thing that none of you agree with yeah it's um I'm actually kind of leaning on I, I'm I will register that I currently favor Anna Anders explanation of uh the trad reform split yeah I mean it's, it's possible um but I my my guess would be that it is that uh, she just can't conceptualize of like a version of her that believes these things, and that is the 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 cause for the split. That's that's possible. Um, regarding the revolution thing, I I just wanted to comment that uh, Anna Ander has very very thoroughly hedged against that possibility. Because not only do you need a successful uh, revolution, since there are thousands of Anaanders in at least hundreds of places, you need to carry out at least that many successful revolutions pretty much simultaneously. Well, not necessarily, right? Like, sure, the revolution, there's no, it's not going to be easy to decapitate the head of the government in the way that it is often, in a way, relatively easy to decapitate the head of a dictatorship, right? Like. Um, you, there is the argument to be made of like, they're just going to be replaced by a kind of similar guy, but that's, that's not always true. Uh, but in the case of Anna Ander, killing one of her is not going to bring down the social order. Right. Uh, so she's hedged in that sense, but you could definitely, she's not everywhere at once and you could, uh, take over ships or places, uh, and start fighting against her and the general Rajai order. Um, does the name Sonny Abacha mean anything to you? I don't recall it. Um, he was a general in the Nigerian army uh, who ent briefly entered Twitter discourse recently. Um, what's significant about him is that Nigeria suffer has suffered uh, four military coups since independence. And, or at a minimum, I can't remember, I just Oof. know about... Uh, four of them, because he was involved in all four of them. Yikes. Busy guy. And all of them were successful. And Was he involved in the sense of doing all of them, or sometimes being the victim of them? No, he was never the victim. He carried out four, he was part of carrying out four successful coups, and on the winning side each time. Man, there's, I know there's that idea of, like, you gotta keep the people in charge, you gotta keep the people in charge who are the best at doing the thing they do, 
even if when you come to power, it really seems like they are super against you or the like against the very reasons you came to power. But come on, guy number three couldn't fucking fire him. Well, if you tried to fire him, then he'd carry out a coup. Clearly that's true, but like, come on! In what sense are you in charge? <laughs> You're not. Um, but you get the impression of being in charge, and you get the opportunity to for a lot of graft, which is the real reason to become a head of state in most of Africa. Um, also, Absolute Sigma Male did not do anything remotely interesting with all the money he stole. Literally just kept it in a bank. Just made a Scrooge McDuck pile and swam in it slept on a hoard of gold like a fucking dragon. The extent to which he spent the money involved getting very drunk and then staying out at whorehouses until like six in the morning and then coming back and waking up at eight for work. You, you got to wonder at some point if that's all you want to do with your free time. Can't you retire after like the second coup? Did you not make enough money? Uh, no, you can't retire because if you retire, then someone will probably try to kill you. Once you've got that kind of power, you can't let go Just of it. go fucking live in Norway or something. The Norwegians probably wouldn't have let him in. But the, the point is, Johnny, when you, the first time that you carry out... Yeah, military... I guess being a war criminal is a bit of, a, is a bit of a, a, an impediment to yeah, that life path. What General Abacha clearly understood is that when you start a military coup the first time, you've grabbed the tail of a tiger. And when you have a tiger by the tail, the only thing that will kill you faster than holding on is letting go. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but anyway, I, I think the theme of this series is ultimately going to be that revolution is nevertheless possible despite all these difficulties. Yeah. So I look forward to seeing how it happens. And it, by definition, it kind of goes in circles, right? Anyway, Esk again talks about her concept of self here. Uh, in the past segments, I'm at the JOT. Uh, in the future segments, uh, it means the one individual who remains. Uh, uh, the transition between the two is a slow and uncertain process that uh, she she figures really began when one ask realized that the Justice of Torn had edited her, her memories to make her forget her apprehension about committing the massacre at the temple. Yeah, which it's interesting that uh, Trad Anna Ander is clearly aware of, or that's the wrong way to start that sentence. The reform faction that Trad Anna Ander is here revealing that it is that she is plotting against clearly is not aware that it has dissent, because this Anna Ander is still alive. The, that it has dissent? The, the reformist faction is not aware that there is a trad faction of Anna Ander. There may be traditionalists among the populace. I don't think that's true, because she trad Anna Ander specifically or, says that the reformers have acted against her and successfully foiled her plots in the past. Okay. Or at least they aren't aware that this specific Anna Ander is part of it. Sure. I mean, that might be true. It, it might be true that the tra these traditionalists on the Justice of Torin are like completely secret. They do seem to be moving in secret. Um, I don't know if I could say that the reformers know uh, that these that these ones are here or not, because like you can't just go giving orders that are like kill every Anander Miadnai you see, uh, no matter what they tell you. Uh, and you also, they they apparently have both decided that it's in their mutual interest to not make it known that there is an internal division. Yeah. And apparently that must have been continually successful up until the present, because 
Strigan talking about it says, is it not just the case that uh, Anna Ender Miadna I makes one decision and then that is the like policy for the entire Rajai? And, y- you know, uh, Ask at that time says it's more complicated than that, which we now know is referring to this. But I mean, on the one hand, Strigan seems like her information about the Rajai is kind of out of date and that she doesn't care that much about the specifics because they're just, you know, uh, the the very straightforward, cartoonishly evil villains in the story of her life. Uh, and so she's not too concerned about the particulars. She also calls the ancillaries corpse soldiers, which is like, you know, pretty clearly a slur and has a bunch of inaccurate ideas about them. Though that's not surprising, given that even the Ragi people seem to do that. But uh, point being, she does not have perfect information about what's going on. And maybe she missed the news that there's a fucking internal split. Yeah. She has been living on a faraway planet with like presumably not a ton of news. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say about 14, because we're right coming up on time. Uh, and I don't want to be terribly rushed with 15. Um, you have a, a note about what coming from the Raj itself when discussing Lieutenant Skyot means. Uh, yeah, it, it's Skyot, uh, her house, uh, the old warehouse comes from the Raj itself rather than you know, presumably the Rajai. Uh, and a previous discussion talks about the Raj as as if it's the home world or like home area of the Rajai. Uh, but then, yeah, it's it's the Imperial Core contextually. But but in a later chapter in fifteen, it says that the Raj was built. The Raj is a built environment. Because hmm. the the line is something like since the Raj was built. But that could still refer to the original empire, like, say, the, the Roman Republic before it started conquering beyond Italy. I mean, I guess. I, I don't know if you would talk about that as a thing that was built. I think it could. I think it's more likely to be like, you know, because they've talked about having orbital habitats and things like that. So it could just be that uh, the Ratch was the first one they made. Maybe. I'm thinking for economic reasons, it would be really hard to expand a civilization outward from a space station possible maybe it's a bigger thing uh, anyway that that is all i have to say about 14 we definitely know a lot more but okay i i will i will quickly move through my remaining 14 points um uh we we hear the phrase here kneeling for advantage which sounds to me like it has a sexual implication but maybe not it's not it's it's, it's not it's about clientage okay uh but Again, this is just me thinking that the clientage thing sounds a bit like a sex thing, um, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. And the Ragi, once again, sound Roman, as as we talked about. Okay, so on to 15. In chapter 15, Esk wakes up to find Cyberden has had a change of heart uh, and done what she can to rescue Esk, which mainly uh, consisted of getting her to a doctor and using the money that she had intended to spend on Kef on uh, getting... Uh, Esk healed up. Um, Esk explains that Cyberdan is not important and is not the subject of her mission and that nobody was coming to look for Cyberdan. Uh, and she begins to tell the tale of what her mission is really about, starting at the context needed to bridge the gap from the Garced genocide to her current desire to kill Anna and her which she starts with the events on Ime. Um, okay, so a couple things here. 
Uh, uh, Cyberdan's change of heart. Very good exchange there. Cyberdan says, I accused you of hating me because I was better than you. Esk says, that's not why I hate you. Cyberdan uh, says, uh, skipping a few things, you never knelt to get where you are. You are where you are because you're fucking capable and willing to risk everything to do right. I'll never be half what you are. And I was walking around thinking I was better than you, even half dead and no use to anyone because I was born better. And Esk says, that is why I hate you. <laughs> and Cyberden says, if that's what you're willing to do for someone you hate, I wonder what you would be willing to do for someone you love. Yeah, I, I like everything about the hospital conversation. Um, very good exchange. Uh, yes. Another quote, uh, the, the hospital basically says, the, the person at the hospital essentially says, I don't fucking believe that you fell down <laughs> off a, off one of those glass bridges that's like a million feet in the air and you're telling me that you survived. Like, there's no way you both fell and you both lived. That just can't have happened. So you're lying to me and that's a bad idea. Uh, and so she asks if you are part of a military force that's coming to the planet and is like, you know, here for bad reasons. Uh, and she says, uh, Esk says, I am not a member of a military force. And then in her thoughts... I am a piece of equipment, a lone, useless piece of equipment. Yeah, the Raj would in, would certainly agree that one ask is not a member of a military force. By this point, not in any sense, but never in that sense. But I do wonder how much she's thinking these things, like, ironically, or how much this is just completely permeated into her sense of self. Because, like, she has said... I am not a person or people are wrong to call me a person, but she's mostly said that in the past segments. Um, but, and here she says, it is technically true that I am not, and was not a piece of a military force, uh, because I was equipped, you know? Uh, so I don't think she thinks of herself that way anyway, anymore, but maybe she still does. And I will be interested, uh, if we get definitive answers on that, but frankly, I don't think she, as a character, knows 100% how she feels about that. Maybe not. I, I, I think we can be confident that she can that she knows what the Rajai would say. Yes, the Rajai answer on it is pretty clear. So yeah, it, it turns out Cyberdan didn't buy the Kef. Um, she sold the flyer, but then when she got back, she found that Esk was gone, and that troubled her. It, it felt wrong to her to, you know, uh, to... It felt especially wrong. It didn't sit right with her um, to spend Esk's money on drugs when Esk might be, like, gone or uh, in trouble or something. And in what is uh, a, a potentially remarkable coincidence, Cyberden brings up the Justice of Torn unprompted when discussing the fact that she has no links to her past because of how she got stuck in cryogenic stasis. Um, and Esk, in response to that, in response to more bits of conversation, asserts that Cyberdan is not the kind of person who would be any ship's favorite. And Cyberdan's response to that is to say, clearly you do know me, so you must be here for me. I must be a part of your mission. Which is just like, ouch, man, that your, your, your self-concept is like, ha, she must know me well to know that no one would ever love me. I don't think that's quite what's being said, but... Like, this is a kind of soldiery thing to say regardless. When you add in the... When you add in the huge dose of self-importance from being nobility, uh, it's like, a lot easier to understand. 
Sure, but like there are soldiers uh, who are liked by the ships, Point. and Cyberdan isn't one. So yes, Esk uh, describes uh, what happened on Ime again, uh, and uh, talks talking about it this time. Uh, we hear that she has like a lot of empathy for the the captain who decided to mutiny, or not the captain, the officer who decided to mutiny based on the unethical thing she was seeing happen. To not kill the Omicronians. Yeah. She she says something like, I never met her, I never even saw her, but I can't help but think of her as an ancillary, an ancillary who, like, disconnected from the hole that was her ship when uh, confronted with the request to make that kind of choice. And the fact that she has that kind of empathy really implies to me that that's what happened to this segment of One-Esque. Given the, the chapter ending with it started at Garced, there's uh, one of the places it started was Garced. I'm hoping we'll get more of that before the end of this book. Although I guess since we're reading the trilogy as a block, uh, I won't have to wait forever or worry about it much. Well, this is being uh, th- this is talking about you could place the start of the events which led to me wanting to kill an and or I at several places. Right. And one of them is Garced. Uh, and one of them was uh, like the original expansion of the Ragi or something like that, or the first time that Anna Ander took over the Ragi. Yeah. And decided to conquer all of human civilization. Was there a third example she gave as a time that you could say that was the beginning? Uh, when the Raj was er, in order presented at Garced, when the Lord of the Raj multiplied herself and set out to conquer all of human space, and when the Raj was built. And further back than that. And that itself is interesting, because probably nobody cared about Anandermi and I before the Raj was built. Yes, but if you are charting, like, why do I want to kill the leader of this political organization, you can still say their actions even before the person who's currently in charge of them got in charge of them are reasons that I want to destroy this organization. Because, like, the organization entire was founded on... Uh, bad principles but it is very interesting now to the the arcs have merged much earlier in the story than say use of weapons did and now now we have some context for what happens next but since i don't understand what's going on with me and i i'm glad that they are still separated because this uh never mind i'm looking for a word for it so i'm but i'm going to go with factional dispute simply because i feel like it's wrong but it's not wrong in ways that matter or it's not wrong in ways that obviously matter, and I can't come up with a good joke about it. So, yeah, let's stick with that for now. I I find it interesting what this structure gives us the opportunity to do, and what is done with this structure here, because, like, one structure is basically the backstory of... uh, One one half of this book is just the whole backstory, uh, or at least most of the significant backstory of Esk and why Esk is the way she is. But then in the present segment, we've had two parts already where, you know, we've kind of had a, a cut between chapters and what is what is said is, and now I explained my entire backstory, basically, right? She explains her whole backstory to Stragan and she's doing it again now to Cyberden. Uh, so that is interesting and i feel like on a second read through is going to be really satisfying because it's going to be uh 
we, when we read it for the first time, are are looking at that and say, and thinking, okay, now Strigan knows everything I know. But Strigan knows more than we know because actually she got the whole story. Because the because the past arc is complete for her. She got, you know, I learned and Andromiad and I got split into two factions, etc. And I figure uh, this is going to happen again here, right? Because Esk is getting a long, uh, sorry, Cyberden is getting a a long explanation as to why Esk feels the way she does about uh, and Andromiad and I, which is presumably including things we don't know yet. Almost certainly. And speaking of things we don't know about, know yet, uh, that seems like a good time to plug the next episode. All right. Next episode, we're covering the next four chapters, as usual. So it's going to be 16, 17, 18, and 19. Yeah, Johnny's been really good about those chapter numbers in this, because the, the numbering scheme is awkward. Um, inversions helpfully had exactly 24 chapters, so there was no ambiguity. But Yeah, well, we, we I think we decided we were going to do a longer last episode rather than anything else, because in general, we've find that we like to talk about a text when we have the whole thing uh, and the rest of the episodes you know they're not a total waste of time but we can't really talk about the te- a text in the way that we can if we've read the whole thing yes it is like yeah good but ever since you pointed that out in like the middle of the culture series I've opted to do the splits in such a way that we have as much that we have more information. If we have to trim information off anywhere, it gets added to the last episode. And I think that I still yeah. think that's a good scheme. Alright. I've been Johnny. And I've been GSV Amusement Park. Enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think.